0: A man is found tortured to death in his hotel room in Kansas City, Missouri, shortly after checking in under a false name. The door to his room? Locked from the outside. All his clothes and other belongings are missing. Witnesses reported screaming fights, bloody chases, and a love of darkness. And after 70 years, an unidentified man claims to have a mysterious item from the crime scene in a box that he won't share with anyone. What exactly happened in room 1046? Killing, missing, hidden, a podcast about bad things. Welcome, welcome, welcome in everyone. This is Brad. Another episode of the KMH Podcast coming at you. We're going to do a little bit of housekeeping up front. First, I'm going to apologize if I sound snotty or otherwise horrible. I'm suffering from a non-COVID virus that just won't go away. I'm assuming at this point it's a gypsy's curse, but I'm not going to let that get in the way of offering my weekly dose of poor quality entertainment. Second, I have to give a huge shout-out to the Strange Sessions podcast. I think I mentioned them before, but they really had some kind things to say about the work we do here. So I have to shower them with love and praise. Kurt and Krista are amazing at what they do. If you like paranormal-style podcasts, please go check them out, like right now. I'll be here when you get back. Uh, Subscribe to them rate them with all the stars you can, send them lots of love. I just adore those two and their podcasts. They do a fantastic job every two weeks. And they're suffering from the COVID in that all of their equipment's been locked up and they can't get to it. So the sound quality is not as perfect as it normally is, as they make do with tin cans and other implements, but they're still producing some fun content. So please go check them out. This week, we are going to be discussing Artemis Ogletree, a.k.a. Ronald T. Owens, a.k.a. The Mystery of Room 1046. This is one of the more perplexing unsolved murder cases in American history. We've got fake names, mysterious letters, unidentified people, and impossible facts. And this 1935 murder remains unsolved to this day despite having new clues made public as recently as 2012. So strap in for a fun little ride, cats and kittens. On January 2nd, 1935, Mr. Ronald T. Owen of Los Angeles booked a room at the Hotel President in Kansas City, Missouri. He was very particular about the room he wanted. It had to be several floors up, It had to be an interior room facing the hotel's courtyard rather than an exterior room facing the rest of the world. He commented he was moving from the Mileback Hotel because it was too pricey for him. The staff described him as being very well-dressed with a fashionable top coat or trench coat. He had a noticeable scar on the side of his face with a cauliflower ear. He carried with him no bags. He was described as being in his early 20s and was generally pleasant. The bellhop took him to room 1046 where Owen pulled out a hairbrush, a comb, and some toothpaste from his coat. And that was the extent of his unpacking. Owen left the room with the bellhop who locked the door and gave Owen the key. Now note that the room was set up so that it could effectively only be locked from the outside. There was a mechanism to lock it from the inside, but for the purpose of our story, every time we talk about the locked door, it's being locked from the outside for whatever reason. Now when the two returned to the lobby, Owen left the hotel and went about his business. Shortly thereafter, a maid went to go clean room 1046 and was surprised to find Owen back in his room. However, he invited her in to do her routine cleaning. The maid told police that when she cleaned his room, both this time and at other times, Owen kept the room very dark, with the curtains drawn and only a small lamp on for light. The maid also commented that it appeared to her Owen was either worried or afraid every time she was around him. Partway through her first cleaning, Owen suddenly stood, brushed his hair, put on his coat and left he asked the maid to leave the room unlocked as he was expecting a visitor this maid returned several hours later to bring fresh towels only to find owen laying on the bed fully clothed she noticed a note on the nightstand which read don i will be back in 15 minutes wait the next morning same maid hits up room 1046 She found the door locked and assuming the room to be empty, she entered without knocking. However, she was surprised to see Owen sitting as he had when she had first met him, in near darkness with a worried look on his face. As she cleaned, Owen received a phone call. Apparently, Owen said, No, Don, I don't want to eat. I'm not hungry. I just had breakfast. No, I am not hungry. While still holding the phone, Owen asked the maid about her job, what rooms she typically cleaned, and repeated his complaint about his former hotel. That evening, same maid, this poor woman had to work a lot, returned with more towels. When she reached the door, she could hear two men talking loudly, almost arguing. She knocked in a voice that was not Owen, asked who it was. The maid identified herself and said she was just bringing some fresh towels. This new voice said they didn't need any towels, which surprised the maid because she had taken all the towels that morning. That evening, a young woman named Jean Owen, no relation, who was staying in room 1048, was entertaining her boyfriend. At approximately 9.20 p.m., both of them, in independent statements to police, said they heard loud shouting coming from room 1046 between a man and a woman that continued into the hallway. Both noted that the argument was very profane. There also happened to be a party being held in a nearby hotel room that evening that lasted into the wee hours of the night, so it's possible the fight was the couple who spilled out from that shindig into the hallway. But the... Jean Owen and her boyfriend both insist that the fight started in room 1046. Also that evening, a woman visiting the hotel, who many of the employees believed to be a prostitute, visited the 10th floor. After five minutes of being there, she summoned the elevator and told the operator she was summoned to room 1046 to meet with a client but nobody was there. Later on that evening, a motorist by the name of Robert Lane was driving by the hotel around 11 p.m. when he had a very unusual encounter. A man who was wearing nothing but an undershirt, pants, and shoes dashed towards Lane's vehicle. Lane stopped, and the man threw open the door but froze. He apologized to Lane, saying he thought he was flagging down a taxi. Lane saw that the man was in distress and offered to take him to a place where he could find a taxi at such a late hour. The man took Lane up on his offer. Lane commented on the man's disheveled appearance, and the man responded only by stating that he was going to kill someone the next day to get even. What a fun response. Lane noticed the man had a pretty good gash on his arm and he was holding his other arm in such a way as if to prevent blood from dripping in Lane's vehicle. Lane took the, the man to an area that were frequented by taxi cabs at night, and the man thanked Lane as he dashed towards the nearest cab. The next morning, which is now January 4th, a switchboard operator began her shift and noticed the phone for room 1046 was off the hook. She rung up the bellhop, who happened to be the same one that helped Owen to his room, and asked him to see if he could get the phone back on the receiver. Bellhop went up, knocked several times before he heard a groggy voice telling him to come in. But the room was locked from the outside with a do not disturb sign on the knob. The bellhop, having not brought the key with him, merely yelled through the door that the phone was off the hook and to please put it back on its receiver. An hour later, the phone was still off the hook. The switchboard operator asked a different bellhop to see if he could fix the problem. The second bellhop brought the key with him and was able to access the room, though the Do Not Disturb sign remained. Inside, he found Owen on the bed, apparently pretty drunk and extremely naked. The second bellhop found the phone on the floor and returned it to its proper position next to the bed. As he did so, in the dim light, he noticed a couple of dark spots on the bed sheets. At 10.30 a.m., the phone again was knocked off the hook, and the switchboard operator again requested that the problem be fixed. First, Bellhop went up to this room with a key this time, and again, ignoring the do-not-disturb side, entered the room to find Owen on his knees and elbows about two feet from the door holding his head. Bellhop noticed the walls, the bathroom, and the bed were covered in blood. The bellhop rushed downstairs to get the manager, and the two returned to room 1046. However, the pair couldn't enter the room as Owen had passed out against the door. Eventually, they were able to prod Owen awake and got into the room. They helped Owen to the bathroom, where he sat on the edge of the bathtub, and kind of steadied himself against the sink. The manager called the police as well as a doctor. The doctor came and examined Owen and finding evidence that he had been strangled, had been bound at the ankles, the wrists, and the neck. He had been stabbed more than once just above the heart, had suffered a collapsed lung as a result of one of these stab wounds, and had a fractured skull. When the doctor questioned who had done this, Owen merely said, nobody. When the doctor tried to get him to explain his injuries, Owen said he had fallen in the tub. Owen denied that he was trying to kill himself, and with that statement, he lost consciousness. He was rushed to the hospital, but Owen never awoke again. He died shortly after midnight on January 5th. Police started their investigation by tracking down Jean Owen, the woman in room 1048, primarily because they found it odd that she shared the same last name as the victim. It wasn't until her boyfriend corroborated her statements that she was released. So we're off to a swinging start with this investigation. The blood splatters throughout the room were examined by the doctor who saw Owen, and he determined that the blood hit the wall sometime between 4 and 5 a.m. based on how dry it was. As police searched the room, they were surprised by what wasn't there. Primarily, no clothing. Period. No coat, no pants, no shoes, nothing. And remember, Owen was found naked, so we're talking about truly nothing. Also missing from the room was soap, shampoo, Towels, the typical things you would expect to find in a hotel room. There were no knives anywhere, but there was a jagged piece of glass missing from a broken water glass. The cords used to bind Owen were tied in such a way that someone else had to have tied them. Police also found four fingerprints on the phone that appeared to be from a woman but it did not, they did not match any hotel staff. And lastly, there was discovered a bottle of diluted sulfuric acid in Owen's room. As police really dug into their investigation, they determined that Ronald T. Owen was likely a false name. They contacted police in Los Angeles who simply could not find anyone living under that name in their jurisdiction. The Kansas City police decided to just check with the staff of the previous hotel he claimed to have stayed at and found no Robert T. Owen had ever stayed there. However, the staff of that hotel did confirm that a man matching Owen's description was there, but under the name Eugene K. Scott, who also claimed to be from Los Angeles. Police found an eyewitness who put Owen at several nearby liquor stores with two women the night before his death. The motorist who helped the frenzy man that same night brought his story to the police, who initially dismissed the story. But the man, again Lane, was able to identify the injuries found on Owen's arms. Remember, he had seen the gash and saw blood dripping down the other arm, and sure enough, those injuries were there. Police got excited when they found a bloody towel from the hotel that was away from the premises. However, the room had no towels due to the maid not being allowed to bring fresh towels in, so it was eventually determined that the towel was part of the cleanup efforts and an employee had just carelessly discarded it. Now, as far as the identification, we have a bit of a wild ride. Owen was initially identified by a local resident as his wife's cousin, but the man's wife let the police know that her cousin had actually died five years ago, though there was a very strong resemblance between the two. A week later, a wrestling promoter named Tony Bernardi identified Owen as a Cecil Werner, a man who approached him earlier about becoming a professional wrestler. I think the time frame was probably November, December of the year before. Bernardi said a fellow promoter could verify this, but the second promoter said it wasn't the same man. Local authorities decided they'd have to bury Owen in a pauper's grave. But the day before the burial, a man called and asked for the burial to be delayed so he could provide some money for a proper burial, thus allowing the man to be married next to his sister. Now, I don't know if his sister meant the benefactor's sister or Owen's sister, but I suspect it's the former. Now, police questioned this man and asked him if he knew anything about the case. And the fella said that all he knew was Owen got mixed up in a relationship with a married woman and those sorts of things never work out very well but he wouldn't or couldn't provide any details beyond that. The man sent money to cover the burial expenses. At the same time, local florists received money to pay for flowers for the service. Both came with the note, Love Forever, Luis. The only people to attend the funeral were detectives, and they staked out the grave for several days to see if anyone came to visit. No one did. When it was incorrectly reported in a local newspaper that Owen would be buried in a pauper's grave, a woman called the editor of the paper and chastised him for this error, though she refused to identify herself. She did say, when pressed for details on Owen's death, that he got into a jam. Images of Owen slowly began to circulate through the press in the hopes of identifying this man. Eventually, word spread down south to Alabama, and a friend of Ruby Ogletree shared the photograph with her, believing the man to be her son. Ruby's son Artemis had left Birmingham in April of 1934 to hitchhike to California. He would send letters regularly, and Ruby would fire him some money when he was running low. Ruby contacted the Kansas City PD and described her son in sufficient detail to satisfy them that Owen was actually Artemis Ogletree. So the mystery solved. Sort of. See, Ruby also told police that the letters hadn't stopped. Uh, The first that arrived after Artemis's death, came from Chicago. And the letter bothered her because it was written off of a typewriter, not in freehand. And she said Artemis didn't know how to use a typewriter. He always wrote his letters by hand. And the letter just didn't read like something Artemis would Right, it had slang that she would never hear him say and things along those lines. In May of 1935, she received two more letters, allegedly from Artemis, both with a New York postmark, saying that he decided he was leaving for Europe. Three months later, out of the blue, Ruby received a phone call from a man in Memphis named Jordan, who claimed that Artemis had saved his life while Jordan was traveling through Cairo, Egypt. Jordan had apparently gotten in over his head in a fight, and Artemis had stepped in to save the man's life, though it cost Artemis part of his hand. The man was calling on behalf of Artemis to let Ruby know that Artemis was living in Egypt and was married. He hadn't been able to write because of the hand injury. The man apparently spoke erratically, but did seem to know Artemis rather well. Police investigated the claim that Artemis was living in Egypt, but found no travel records under Artemis' real name to indicate he ever left the country. And after several conversations with Ruby, police identified a third hotel Artemis had likely stayed at while in Kansas City. Though in this one, he shared the room with another unidentified man. Later on, in 1937, a man named Joseph Martin was arrested by the New York PD for murder. Martin had killed a man and shipped him to Memphis in a trunk. Martin was known to use a variety of aliases. So why are we talking about this dude? Well, it just so happens that his handwriting matched some of the letters Ruby had received. Yet there was never enough evidence to support a murder, murder charge for Ogletree's death. Though it's never clearly stated, I assume the handwriting would refer either to the signature or to the le- the letter's address, since all the letters Ruby received after Artemis's death were typewritten. But this is not clearly explained in any of the articles I found, which, as always, are in my show notes. In either 2003 or 2004, so we're skipping ahead a few decades here, John Homer, who is or was a historian at the Kansas City Public Library, received a phone call from someone with an out-of-state number who claimed to have been cleaning out the house of a recently deceased elderly man. In his cleaning efforts, This man had found a box with dozens upon dozens of newspaper clippings about this case. The caller also claimed that the box had an item noted in several police reports and news articles. However, the caller refused to identify himself or the item he found. Homer shared this information with the public in 2012 as part of a blog he was doing, which, again part of the show notes okay wow so where do we go from here that's the story that's what we know that's all the evidence we have so we got about 15 different paths we could stumble down and try to explore which doesn't really work for a 30 minute format so let's take on the task the impossible task of trying to piece together some idea of why Artemis was killed. I mean, this was a brutal murder. Evidence of choking and beatings and knife wounds, all while Artemis was restrained. And there's also an aspect of humiliation to it, since he was naked during this assault and all his clothing was stolen. So if he was tree cover, he was going to have to seek help in the nude. Or if he were to die, he would die in the nude. To me, this eliminates any sort of happenstance crime, like robbery or anything else that would have an impersonal motive. This is a crime where someone felt wronged. Now, we've got some circumstantial evidence to support this theory. Remember, Artemis was absolutely ticked off when the motorist took him in to find a taxi. He stated he was going to find and murder someone the next day. This was after the neighbor claimed to hear the vulgar argument. And we also have the unidentified benefactor who paid for his funeral, claiming that Artemis's death was the result of an adulterous affair. And we do have women's fingerprints at the crime scene. The timeline again, just to help keep this straight in your mind, At 9.20 is when the neighbor, Gene Owen, and her boyfriend heard the loud argument between a man and a woman coming from room 1046. 11 o'clock is when Lane, the motorist, claimed that Artemis had gotten in his vehicle looking for a taxi. The doctor's best estimate as to the time of the assault was between 4 and 5 a.m. So that's the timeline we're primarily dealing with. So with that circumstantial evidence, we can kind of paint a picture that would explain why Artemis is bouncing around to different hotels using different names and always wanting a hotel room that was several stories up and did not face the street. Think about it, it's easier not to accidentally be seen if you're not on the first floor facing out into the public. It could also explain his lack of luggage as he may have been forced to make a hasty exit from his last hotel or a previous hotel. Perhaps it could explain why Artemis didn't want to identify his attacker when he was questioned shortly before he died. He may not have wished to leave his married lover with the stigma of being an unfaithful wife. Artemis was a young man. His mother said he was only 17 when he died. I've seen other evidence suggesting he was 20. Regardless, very young, probably immature, coming out of Birmingham in the 30s, you know, hitchhiking to California. Stopping in Missouri, it's a different world between, <laughs> between Birmingham, Alabama, and any big city today, much less during the Great Depression. My guess is Artemis met with a lover of some sort on the evening of January 3rd and was caught red-handed. Maybe the wife snuck out of that party that was going on down the hall to meet with Artemis. I don't know. Uh, But say the husband catches them and a huge fight ensues. During the fight, Artemis tries to defend himself but gets stabbed in the arm. The couple leaves in a screaming match. After trying to mend his wounds as best he can, Artemis in a rage goes after them. To no one's great surprise, things don't go swimmingly for Artemis. Maybe he was bullied back to his hotel where he would meet his unfortunate end. It would also help explain why there's flowers sent from somebody named Luis to his funeral. And, you know, having a young man chasing after an older married woman who's maybe not appreciated... I could see where she could find that flattering and and would engage in it. But I know it's not a perfect theory. It's really the best I can come up with from what evidence we have while I'm under the influence of cough medicine. I do have an alternative theory, one that doesn't tie up as many loose ends, but Kansas City really was a mob town during the 30s. Uh, The hotel president, in fact, used to be a very popular speakeasy during the 20s. There's a chance Artemis may have gotten in some sort of debt with mobsters. There were some whispers slash rumors that Artemis wanted to become a professional wrestler or a professional boxer. Remember, the hotel staff described him as having a cauliflower deer which suggests he was at least experienced in one or both of these arts. Is it possible he got into a mob fight and didn't follow instructions and then costs somebody with some power some money? You know, the mob's response is to send a prostitute to seduce Artemis. So he was caught totally off guard when some sort of muscle was sent in to send a message, which could explain why he was naked in the beating, and maybe the enforcer just went a little too far in doing his job. It's a possibility it doesn't connect all the dots very well, um, but there may be some mob undertones to this. Personally, I don't think this Don fella that we see referenced a few times had anything to do with Artemis' death. It seems like Artemis thought of Don as someone he could trust, maybe even as a friend. We have evidence supporting this where he alerted Don to his new hotel. He asked for the door to be left open for Don. And they apparently had some sort of history in sharing meals. That's not things you do with someone who's out to kill you. But that's all the information we have about Don. Um, I don't feel like there's enough of an evidentiary foothold to speculate as to Don's role in Artemis' life or death. Heck, for all we know, Don could have been the ones writing the letters to Ruby just to try to help keep her mind at ease. He could have pretended to be Jordan uh, to who made the call about the Cairo incident. Maybe he was just a kind-hearted dude who wanted to make sure Artemis' mom didn't suffer with worry and that was the best little story he could come up with to keep her from questioning where Artemis had gone to. Of course, total speculation. I can't begin to offer an opinion about who paid for the burial or why. I also struggle with what could be in this mystery box, the color to the historian claimed to possess. I can't think of a single item in this case that really jumps out of being of such importance that somebody would call in to an out-of-state historian to tease him about this discovery. Uh, but maybe one of y'all out there can piece this together and, and see what item could be missing. I, I just simply can Okay, and now I can give my voice a rest as we're done with this turkey. Uh, this is a really confusing case. Uh, naturally, it's very sad. It it just reads to me like a boy that got in over his head as he's out exploring the world and learning about himself. I hope you all enjoyed exploring this labyrinth with me. We're going to move on to our palate cleanser, but sadly, I have to report that my child... Who is engaged in a very tense Fortnite battle right now with his brothers failed to provide me with a joke. So I'm going to have to be an emergency substitute here. If you want to end the episode right here, no one would blame you. So here's the, the palate cleanser, as it were. Why wouldn't the shrimp share his treasures? Again, why wouldn't the shrimp? share his treasures because he was a little shellfish oh i wish i did cheesy sound effects so i could do a nice little rim shot on that one all right thank you all for listening this week as always please leave us a review especially if you listen on itunes if you could share this podcast with a friend that would just be right fantastic of you if you have any topics you want us to cover Or if you just have a general question, feel free to email us anytime. It's info at kmhpodcast.com. And also, go listen to The Strange Sessions. They're good people. They do a good job. They have some fun topics. Even some that we have covered or will cover. So I'm going to pack it in for the week. Join us next week. I think I've got a strange one on deck. If I can find enough source material i'm struggling with that a little bit but hopefully i can pull that one off also to further tease you this is episode 18 y'all really need to come back for at least episode 20 because i'm gonna have a special announcement then so make an appointment to please be here well every week i mean your tuesday should revolve around what i'm doing but in two Tuesdays you'll you'll probably hopefully want to be here. Okay, enough of me rambling. Y'all have a good week. I know y'all all do well this week. Be safe, be healthy. We love you. Ta ta. Thank you for listening to Kellen Missing, Hidden. Make sure to rate, subscribe and share. Questions? Email us at info. KMHpodcast.com